Hello everyone, once again, welcome to Reason for Hope. We are back with you again, live for the next hour to receive and with the help of the Bible, answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's what we're all about, a reason for hope. You can send in your questions on the Bible through the various online platforms where we're streaming live. Through the chat function, send them in. I will be uh, keeping my eye on all those questions coming in and we will throw them out to these fine gentlemen over here to my right who will delve into the Word to find the answers to those questions. So it might be a, a verse or passage of Scripture or Maybe the Bible as a whole, maybe Christianity as a whole, maybe even something you're going through in your own life, you'd like a biblical perspective. Really, any honest question that you have, as long as you know, the Bible is the source of the, uh, the answers on A Reason for Hope. That's what we're all about. Like I say, my name's Dave Robson. I'll be hosting today and fielding all those questions as they come on in with us today. We have Pastor Scott Richards, author, Bible teacher, and the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. That's me. Average golfer. I don't know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> that's that's very generous of you, Dave, actually. <laughs> say that. Yeah. Someone told me you're very good. I, I wouldn't know a good golfer from a, a chess player. I don't play golf, but someone said, like, he's really good. Someone you play with or something. So I don't know. That's a compliment for you. Well, everything's relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you just meet some of my relatives. That's, so. right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. There's always someone better. But you doing good yeah. today? Yeah, doing great. Yeah, good yeah. to see you. Thanks for yeah. making the time to be here. And uh, Pastor Sean Richards as well. How are you doing? Good. Just to demonstrate what a lack of TikTok brain does to somebody, ketchup is made from tomatoes, mayonnaise is made from eggs, and I, ch I don't know exactly how to pronounce this. Mustard is made of coriander seeds. Sure. Right. <laughs> Good. Write it down somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope that was very informative for you. <laughs> yes, we, we try to get to the key issues here. Yes, on this we do. Podcast. We get that out of the way early. Yeah. yeah. And then it just goes uphill from there. But uh, once again, as I mentioned, a reason for hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's here in Tucson, Arizona, where we're broadcasting from. Don't be fooled by my accent. We are here in, in uh, Southern Arizona. Um, it's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, so if you keep that in mind as you're trying to find us on the various platforms, um, then that will help you out. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com um, is our website. You're welcome to have a little click around there. We have Bible studies, and of course we go live with our services and uh, events and all things, all kind of things going on. So if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area, you're certainly welcome to come and uh, check us out, even in person. But for the purposes of this evening that watch live tab that you see right there that will take you to our live page and whenever we're live you'll see a streaming right there as we're live right now you'll see the video you can sign in with a username and there'll be a chat function where you can send your questions um, in there we encourage you to do so when we're offline you'll see a countdown to our next show and you'll see the schedule of upcoming events like I say Monday through Friday is the reason for hope five to six and we have a Wednesday evening service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship we're going through the book of Ezekiel and then on Sundays currently the book of Acts. We have three morning services, so that's all streamed there, and also other men's breakfast on Saturday. We'll be streaming that as well, so we have all kinds of streaming going on, so you're welcome to check out that page, maybe even bookmark it, but the direct link is ccftucson.online.church, or once again, follow the link from our calvarychristianfellowship.com website. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash ccftucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, don't forget to like and share as well. We'd appreciate that. Um, but that's another way you can send your question in right there in the chat box. I will be watching there as well. So send your question in. Get them in early. We'd love to be able to get to as many of your questions today as we possibly can. We have a mobile app as well. 
Uh, look for that red background with the Calvary Chapel Dove logo as there's uh, a few Calvary Christian Fellowships around the world, but we are Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Um, so oh, I pressed my button too soon. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that in your app store and you can download our app. And on Roku and Apple TV as well, we have a channel. So go to your channel store and add us as a channel. You can watch us on your Roku or Apple TV enabled channel. Uh, devices, boxes, etc. We are on YouTube as well. Um, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. That's where you'll find us on YouTube. That live tab right there, anytime we've been live, you'll see an archive of the shows. And so if you missed a show or you want to rewatch one or want to check out our services here and all, all kinds of live events, that's a great place to go on YouTube, A Reason for Hope, and that live tab. And once again, if you wouldn't mind liking and subscribing and um, sharing the links around and even clicking on that notification bell then you'll get a little prod when we are live as well a little reminder there so that's youtube for you reason for hope uh pastor scott right here is on twitter he's on here and twitter at the same time it's incredible he's got these magic powers um, <laughs> his handle is scott r4h uh scott letter r number four letter h on twitter uh, you can follow along with him if you're on twitter yourself and he posts highlights from the show and and uh, commentary on, on news events and world events and all kinds of tomfoolery and shenanigans as well for your, your Twitter uh, pleasure. So <laughs> if you're on Twitter... Why should I be any different? <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah. Scott R4H on Twitter, you'll find him there. And we're on Rumble as well. We post our uh, archive there, A Reason for Hope, Bible Q&A. Look for that on Rumble if you're on that platform. I'm not on there yet personally. I should probably get on it, but um, there it is for you. We have an email address, questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com got 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 com yes dot yes. com yes <laughs> you know what it is yeah we questions have for the hope. Comms. we have the comms yes, <laughs> yes all the comms um you're welcome to email us there at any time but we get those uh, questions through there as well on the radio we're glad that you're joining us through reach radio one of the affiliates but you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not actually live with you but use that email address questions for hope gmail.com we'd love to get to that question on our next show and then consider joining us on one of our live platforms when you're home and not on your drive time or for whatever reason you join us on the radio it's perfectly fine to join us on the radio you can do that not judging but there we go <laughs> <laughs> well with all that making uh, me feel very old <laughs> that's right radio yeah. Yeah. what is that radio yeah the wireless that's my yes. grandparents used to call yes. it but well we'd love to pause and pray before we go any further and just invite the Lord obviously to guide us but uh, who wants it today guys who wants it who's going to take it I'll be absent tomorrow so I'll get as much That's as I can true. today okay That's true. Dad thank you that we have the chance to be in your word I want to ask that you would speak not only truth but also comfort also opportunities for us to share your heart that what's received and related here be honoring to you and building up to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Pastor Scott, do you have anything to share with us today? I know there's been a lot yeah, um, of Well, East. yesterday, if you were with us on the program, we talked about uh, the aftermath of uh, the conflict between uh, Islamic Jihad and Israel, what was called Operation Shield and Arrow. Uh, apparently, this has come to a, uh, an end. Uh, the heavy lid is back on the proverbial pot there in the Middle East. Uh, for those of you not aware, starting on uh, May 2nd, Islamic Jihad uh, launched 104 rockets at Israel to protest uh, the death of uh, one of their leaders who died as a result of a hunger strike in Israeli prison. Well, Israel waited a week and then uh, launched Operation Shield and Arrow. Uh, six senior 
Islamic Jihad commanders ended up being taken out in all of this. Islamic Jihad fired uh, 1,469 rockets and mortars at Israel. Of those weapons, uh, statistically, 291 failed and fell in Gazan territory. 39 dropped into the sea. The Iron Dome took out 437. Two more were intercepted by the David Sling system. Uh, well over 95% of uh, the Islamic Jihad missiles were intercepted uh, by Israel during this particular time. However, uh, a couple of these missiles uh, made its way through and two Israelis lost their lives in uh, an attack. 77 were injured uh, as a result mm. of the fact that uh, no anti-missile system is going to be perfect. Uh, again, uh, the, uh, the uh, issue we were talking about yesterday uh, was uh, in light of the fact that, uh, well, it seems like Islamic Jihad ran out of commanders or ran out of missiles, but uh, stopped firing missiles at uh, Israel. Uh, but today in Israel was uh, Jerusalem Day, which is a very provocative uh, celebration. What Jerusalem Day is, is a celebration of the day in 1967 when uh, Israeli troops uh, reunited Jerusalem under Israeli control. And as uh, you can probably imagine, uh, it was a fairly controversial time. We uh, talked a little bit yesterday about whether this was going to be the kind or level of uh, event that would uh, cause, say, Iran or some of their proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas uh, to get involved in the launching missiles at Israel business. Well, uh, the uh, Jerusalem uh, Day, uh, also known as Israeli Flag Day, uh, came and went. What it was was around 50,000 Israelis paraded with Israeli flags through the uh, western and eastern sides of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some skirmishes, uh, some uh, fights, uh, not only between Israelis and Arabs, but apparently some of the more pitched fights, as far as fist fights and such go, uh, happened between uh, participants in the flag march and journalists, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, it was uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, well, uh, when the march began, as we mentioned, controversial national security minister Itamar Ben-Giver said, Jerusalem is ours. Whoever threatens us should know that the people of Israel live. At the end of the ceremony at the Western Wall, uh, Ben-Giver said, how beautiful to see tens of thousands in the old city on the way to the Western Wall. How beautiful to see our flags, the blue and white flag. Today we say to Hamas who threatened us, to the terrorists who threatened us, Jerusalem is ours. We will continue to love Jerusalem. We will continue to dream of Jerusalem. We will continue to be and live in Jerusalem. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also made remarks at the closing ceremony. Uh, he said, despite the threats, and I will tell you because of the threats, I instructed to hold the flag march for the participation of thousands on its traditional route as usual and according to procedure. We dealt heavy blows to our aggressors in the Gaza Strip, and I believe that the message was received not only by them, but also in other places in our region who witnessed the impressive operational capabilities of the state of Israel. If another reminder is required to renew the deterrence, it will also come. We have changed the equation. Well, interestingly, uh, perhaps the uh, most uh, potentially incendiary uh, activity that happened here was a number of Jewish visitors to the Temple Mount itself raised the Israeli flag on the Temple Mount. John, you can probably uh, fill us in about how 
well received that would be by the Muslims there. I don't think and, I have to. And they also sung the uh, Jewish national anthem, Hatikva. The words of Hatikva, literally the hope, uh, go like this. As long as the Jewish spirit is yearning deep in the heart, with eyes turned toward the east, looking toward Zion, then our hope, the 2,000-year-old hope, will not be lost. To be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. So seeing that on the Temple Mount, right in front of the delightful uh, and charming uh, members of the Waqfa that we had a chance to see in action on our uh, Israel trips, uh, certainly a, a very uh, provocative uh, kind of an event going on. Uh, video from the scene uh, showed a man with a small flag while the group uh, walking with him sang the Israeli national anthem. The man carrying the flag was detained. At least three additional individuals raised Israeli flags on the mount on Thursday as well. Uh, uh, a number of uh, Israeli politicians visited the Temple Mount on Thursday. Uh, one uh, minister, Yitzhak Wasserloff, uh, said this, uh, the Temple Mount is the holiest place for the Jewish people. It is not my first time there and I'm always excited to go up to the Mount. It's inconceivable to accept a claim as if the presence of the Jews in a certain place, especially in the holiest place for the people of Israel, is an extreme act. As someone who immigrated to Israel from abroad to the state of the Jews, out of deep Zionism, I cannot accept an argument that says that the very presence of Jews in a certain place is a provocation. This is unacceptable. I intend to ask God in this holy place to work for the unity of Israel and for the prosperity of the state of Israel in the face of many challenges facing us. So uh, again, uh, during the visit, not only <laughs> Did you have some of these uh, Israeli individuals who raised the Israeli flag arrested? We are also told from reports that uh, a number of the Al-Aqsa guards, uh, the Waqfa, were arrested by the Israeli police as well when they got a bit rambunctious. Mm. But the most important thing that we can say at this particular time was absolutely zero missile launches at Israel as a result of the Jewish Flag Day. Now, why was that the case? We shared with you a bit about how the concern was that Hamas, well, the other terrorist entity in Gaza, was keeping its powder dry, uh, did not join with Islamic Jihad in uh, attacking Israel during this time, which seems a bit unusual. Maybe not so unusual. Uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is Islamic Jihad and Hamas are uh, bitter rivals for the hearts and minds and control of the Gaza Strip. Uh, they both consider themselves to be the standard bearer as far as resistance to the Jewish state and uh, the promotion of all things Islam. And, and so uh, one, uh, only under extreme circumstances would tend to help the other. So, uh, you know, again, Hamas probably looked at Islamic Jihad, all right, <laughs> you want the Israelis to take out six of your commanders and uh, rain down uh, missiles upon you and take out your arms caches, fine with us. All you're going to show the Gaza people is that you're ineffectual and incompetent in terms of responding to the Israeli threat. Mm -hmm. So Hamas probably doesn't get involved because they've made their point. Now, why didn't they uh, launch missiles at Israel? You know, when you've got these kind of provocative things like singing Hatikva on the Temple Mount and so on, you would think if there was anything that would really rile up uh, a terrorist to the point where they would launch missiles and so forth, it would be that. Well, no response from Hamas, no response 
from Hezbollah. No response even from Syria, even trying to lob a missile or two in that direction. And occasionally they'll uh, send a drone across the border or some kind of a missile across the border. When we were uh, there in Galilee the, the first time, uh, the Iron Dome took out a missile right over the Sea of Galilee while we were there. We got a chance to hear that about two in the morning. Mm. So not an incredibly unusual event. What is unusual here to me is that there was no response, mm. no missile launches whatsoever. Mm. Why? Well, lots of different speculations uh, can fly around. Let me offer my two cents worth. Uh, nothing happens in any of these terrorist groups without the express not only approval but order of uh, the one who's pulling all the strings of terrorism in the Middle East right now, and that is the Mad Mullahs in Tehran. Why would Iran not want to get things dusted up and going against Israel? Well, uh, we also read uh, really interesting developments going on in Ukraine, believe it or not, because uh, the number one source of drone technology and uh, a supplier of missiles to the Russian efforts in Ukraine uh, is Iran. Uh, Iran and uh, the Russians definitely are, uh, are up to their uh, waist, I would think, in a uh, quagmire in this particular set of circumstances. We also have seen that uh, the, uh, the, the counteroffensive uh, that is being uh, promised by the Ukrainians against the Russians uh, may be proceeding apace. So it may very well be that uh, the strategy of the Mad Mullahs in Tehran is saying, okay, we've got to keep our alliance with Russia alive and vital. They're the ones that provide us the nuclear reactors to begin with that allow us to be able to pursue nuclear weapons. They are the ones uh, that can provide the infrastructure for us to carry out our eventual nefarious uh, plans against the Jewish people. So we've got to stand with Russia right now. And it's very possible that Vladimir Putin is saying, nah, 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 you know, this happens every year. Uh, don't get uh, your eye off the ball. What we've got to deal with now is the situation in Ukraine. So it may very well be that because of that, and I'm just offering wild speculation here, I have no insider information to lead in that direction. Uh, but I do think it's very unusual that at least a ceremonial rocket or two wasn't launched at Israel on this very provocative day. It's very possible that uh, the Iranians are saying to their terrorists, uh, not yet, hold uh, your horses. We've got other things that we've got to take care of here to the north. Uh, a uh, attempted coup attempt in Azerbaijan uh, that was being orchestrated by Iran uh, was exposed and uh, completely defeated earlier today as well. Mm. So uh, the idea of turning uh, Azerbaijan into a Shiite Muslim governed state pretty much fell through the cracks. So it does appear that the mad mullahs have their hands full in things to the north. And so that may be why we are seeing this pause going on. That may be why Hamas did not join in and uh, launch some rockets at Israel. It may be why Hezbollah is not even sending a ceremonial, just to show you that we can, drone or missile strike into the Galilee region. Uh, may very well be because the people pulling the strings in Tehran said, nope, don't do it. Yeah. We've got other things in our mind right now. So. Right. However peace comes to that region for however long, uh, we should all uh, thank the Lord for that and continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a couple of questions coming while we're on the, 
the subject, maybe you can comment on. Um, Annie says, I saw a post today claiming that Israel either did or was uh, proposing to criminalize with it with one year imprisonment penalty, the spreading of the Chris, uh, Christian gospel. Um, Real quick, this happened. We, we talked about that a couple months ago. It's brought up every single yeah. time there's an election, yeah, <laughs> and it never goes through. There is one uh, extremist, ultra-Orthodox party in Israel that uh, basically owes its existence, if you will, to bringing this particular issue up. Mm. Uh, and uh, they do virtually every time the Knesset meets, uh, the proposal gets the attention that it so richly deserves. It's basically allowing people to stand up and hem and haw about those uh, awful uh, uh, messianic uh, Christians and so on and, and uh, trying to uh, convert our children and all of this. And, and so once they get done with their hoo-ha and all that other stuff, maybe gets five votes mm. in the Knesset, maybe ten. Uh, Which is not good. But uh, you've got to... <laughs> have like 60 votes for 61 for something to pass. So in a sense, it's, I guess to use the term kabuki theater, mm. uh, like a lot of po political acts are, uh, you know, they will throw something out there and say, see, we're really doing something. We're, we're putting this thing uh, on, on the front burner. You know, we see in our own government uh, people saying, oh yeah, we're, we're gonna throw this one a representative out of uh, the, out of Congress, or or things along this line, or, or we're going to impeach uh, a certain member of the cabinet. Uh, most of those things are just kind of what they say red meat uh, for the uh, rabid followers and the ability at election time to be able to say, hey, you know, I did did everything I could, and boy, one day we're really going to pass this thing. Yeah. So, um, no, uh, it it never really gets much traction. I think if you deal with the Orthodox community and say, hey, I'm a born-again Christian, want to have fellowship, all you will get is a cold stare. Mm. Now, they, they do not like born-again Christians. They did uh, like my foil sculptures, though. Yeah. <laughs> so mm. that's, that's uh, the they don't mind uh, born-again Christians being there as tourists, but uh, the idea of doing uh, open evangelism of Jews there is something that is really uh, repellent to them. Which yeah. was another question that we got. Yeah, yeah, from Toby. Uh, Toby says he saw a YouTube video of a street uh, preacher telling Jews in Israel to repent, and they were attacked. And then uh, this is the crux of both questions. Yeah, should we still support Israel? So why do we support Israel? Why do we pray for Israel? And is there a point how? where we should? Uh, well, let, let me or ask. How, let yeah. me ask a question. And I'll throw it over to you. Okay, how do we support the government of the United States? when uh, there are uh, individuals in Congress who will say things like uh, anyone who, uh, for instance, believes in a biblical definition of marriage is an extremist uh, or a terrorist, should right. be on a terrorist watch list. Uh, these are things that have become policy in some parts of the federal bureaucracy, believe it or not. Does that mean that we cannot support uh, any facet of our government when these things are going on? Well, no, you see something that is very extreme going on. Uh, we still have a representative form of government. We have the opportunity to be able to speak to our representatives about our concerns along these lines. Uh, oversight of these areas still does go on, whether it's effective or not is another question. But it, it's the same thing, in essence. Uh, if uh, there is a minor political party uh, in Israel that makes a statement along this line. Well, there's a minor political party uh, that is also Islamist in the Knesset, made up of individuals who are entirely behind 
the idea of the wiping out of the Jewish state driving in the Mediterranean. Mm. You know, and it just depends on uh, which part of the political process you're looking at. So just to uh, say, well, uh, because this uh, minor uh, political party uh, that's made up of ultra-Orthodox extremists uh, wants to have a bill like this passed, uh, I would say, well, look at the vast majority of the rest of the Knesset who doesn't want to have this passed. Isn't mm -hmm. that probably more representative of that? As far as street preachers being attacked, I'd have to see uh, the YouTube video as an individual that uh, experienced street preachers when I was at the U of A. Uh, I guess it depends on the street preacher. Some of the street preachers at the U of A uh, certainly did seem to make provocative, inflammatory comments to stir up a crowd mm. so that they could feel persecuted. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, more often than not, the only way I found to turn these things around is just a little bit of insight here, was uh, to watch these people putting on their dog and pony show uh, in the crowd, calling sorority girls prostitutes, but not using the term prostitute and so on. Uh, you know, these sort of things. Uh, you know, just to look over at somebody and say, yeah, you know, uh, what do you think of this guy? And uh, they go, oh, I think he's an idiot, you know? And I mm -hmm. say, yeah, you know, isn't it amazing how different Jesus is than all of that? Mm -hmm. And then hopefully a conversation will emerge. But, yeah. but the idea behind this, and anti-Semitic or not, the idea that because select groups of Hebrews, whether in their government or on the local streets, are setting a tone of hostility towards Christians, therefore that motivates us to distance from them. Let that not even be a thought, to use Paul's term. Yeah. Uh, when we're, that's uh, Romans 6.1. Yeah. But when we're talking about the uh, issue and concern of how to support Israel, as my father was mentioning, it's the same way we support the United States or whatever country that we're living in, but with one added benefit. And I say that intentionally. First of all, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham and his descendants who would carry this spiritual blessing, not every one of Abraham's descendants, but in particular the Hebrew nation, were going to carry this promise with them. There will be a blessing to all nations, not just in reference to bringing the Messiah into this world, but just on principle. We can see that every time they've gotten involved in a nation, it's impacted it greatly. For better or worse, you decide. But they always seem to have a world-turning influence wherever the Hebrew people go. That's first and foremost something to keep in mind. The second part of that verse is, I will bless those who bless you, which is something I want to be a part of if I can help it. Yeah. My actions are to be towards the Hebrew people, and there is maybe some unwarranted <clears throat> hostility or they don't want anything to do with the gospel. I do my best not to be that guy in their life because I have this, prop this uh, promise in mind. I will curse those, God speaking to Abraham, who curse you. Once again, that is something I would want to avoid in my actions, yeah. if at all possible. So when we're talking about our interactions with the Hebrew people, obviously there are going to be a lot of very interesting people on the internet. I actually had a formal debate with a white supremacist who thought that Jesus would not be worthy of worship or couldn't be a god because he was Jewish and they're such an inferior race. And believe it or not, he was a lot more reasonable to talk to about this than most college students in the United States, but I digress. When we're talking about the Jewish people 
the Jewish nation, the Hebrew ethnicity, and of course the promises of God that are still applicable to them. If you have follow-up questions and wondering about uh, replacement theology and the, I'll just say it, the outright uh, anti-Semitic biases that are shown there, we can. But we don't want to put ourselves at odds, even in theory, with the promises of God or an object of being a curse. So the question is, how? Not should we, that's a given. (laughs) Not just when, but how should we be of support to the Hebrew people? And the answer isn't to approve of everything that they do. In Revelation chapter 11, we're told that at the time that the two witnesses are going to be preaching, the first half of the tribulation, spiritually, the place which our Lord was crucified is compared to what? Sodom and Egypt, two not very exemplary groups in Scripture. Secondly, when it comes to the other how, oh, does this mean that every single time their name comes up, we assume the best of them? There may be a place to that. We have the hard no's and then we have the maybes. Maybe to not fall into the zeitgeist, to use the German word, where it's always the Hebrews' fault. The Jews did it. The Jews are responsible for all these things. We don't want to get caught up in an anti-Semitic rhetoric because, once again, that models the heart of Satan. Read Revelation chapter 12 and his efforts to persecute those who have the testimony of Jesus and, of course, the one, the nation, who birthed the Messiah to begin with. The definites, then, We have the no's in regards to outright opposition. We have the maybes in regards to assuming the best. But where can we actually support them? It's to first understand on principle of all the ethnic groups that this world had to offer throughout the ages. God chose to do a special work through them. This doesn't mean that they're infallible any more than, say, perhaps you looking up to my father or me as sound Bible teachers. Doesn't mean we're infallible, doesn't mean that you have to support everything that we do, but you recognize that as we're teaching the Word, you recognize as well, God's doing a work there. I can salute the rank without honoring the man, so to speak, right? But also understanding that unique calling, Deuteronomy chapter 7, I think, is the crux of how we should view the Jewish nation and how we ought to support Israel. And and there's other illustrations made in the prophecies of Isaiah, but this one I think brings it home. God did not set his face on you or choose you because you were greater than the other nations, for you were the least of all peoples. But what does the passage say? Because the Lord loves you. you. If I'm going to interact with anybody, treat somebody, see somebody, the way that, and this is in reference to the Hebrew nation as a whole, and note, in Deuteronomy, two-thirds of that book is telling them how much they messed up. This wasn't them at their peak. This wasn't exclusively speaking to those good Hebrews. It's speaking to the Jewish nation, carte blanche. And it says what? The Lord your God loves you. If I want to be at odds with God, probably be the same way I want to be at odds with anybody, as I badmouth, as I despise, as I reflect the sort of heart and hatred towards someone that they love, that we have in writing that he loves. Oh, but God loves the whole world. 
doubling down on the point then. If you do have high regard for your fellow man created in the image and likeness of God, that dignity and respect is at least at the bare minimum due to the Jewish people, if not more so that we have it in writing. The fact that they have a unique calling, the fact that they still have a future purpose for God, and that with them includes the blessing of being blessed and the cursing of curse or the curse of cursing them, I can control my behavior, I can control my perspective, and I can also take with a grain of salt the rhetoric that's passing against and towards them in this day and age. That's how we support Israel, not assuming the worst of them, giving them the same dignity and regard as anyone made in the image of God, and understanding that God has a purpose for them in the future that's going to literally rock the foundations of the creation entire. That is the due respect that we have for the Jewish people. That is what we should bring in every conversation regarding them, and also to consider when legitimate criticisms ought to be leveled. Now, if you're in a situation where some Hebrew ethnic person did you wrong. Uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy right now about George Soros being defended in his actions in collaboration with the Nazis. Mm. We just got kicked off YouTube. And of course him being a Holocaust survivor as opposed yeah, to a perpetrator. Seems, it's interesting that uh, they, this seems to be the go-to way of referring to George Soros, who openly admits that he was, uh, as a 14-year-old, going about uh, with uh, a foster relative uh, essentially inventory and confiscating the belongings of Jews who had been sent to the death camps. And smiling about it. Yeah, and saying it was one of the greatest times of his life. Um, mm. To me, uh, saying that this man was a Holocaust survivor would be the same thing as saying that an individual who was a prison guard at Dachau is a Holocaust survivor because he wasn't shot on sight by the Allies when they saw the atrocities at the camp. Which yeah, you, you cannot use the term Holocaust survivor to describe someone who did what George Soros did. But then bringing it back to, but he's a Hebrew, don't you just excuse everything that they've done and don't you want to be blessed? Do you want to speak evil? No, I recognize evil and understand he's going to answer before his God for the actions that he's committed. But I also understand that I don't want to take a proactive effort in demeaning his entire ethnic group Haman style, because right. he is objectively evil. That's the difference. If you have a specific example, treat them like you would, or at least rationally would, any other human being. That individual did something horrible and continues to do horrible things and destabilize in the United States. But here's another interesting facet. Does the actions of one man determine the standard by which you treat an entire ethnicity? If you're a bigot, <laughs> the actual use of that word maybe, but that's the point, is if someone, Hebrew or not, does something evil, there is a difference. If people in the Hebrew government do something evil, you can recognize it as evil, but it's not a mark against the whole Jewish ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you see individuals on the street doing something evil towards Christians, that's evil. But we A, need more information because we have experience with these kinds of stereotypes, and B, we need to make sure that we're not being irrational and consistent or bigoted in our approach towards any group, especially the people that God has chosen as his own. Right, absolutely. Well, Annie and uh, Toby, thank you for your, your questions, which uh, followed along from our discussion there. Appreciate it. Um, some, more, some 
more questions coming in good questions we got here pauline thank you for hanging in there i know this was a question from yesterday uh, pauline asks why don't we see giants today was it because of uh, climate change or um after the flood etc in the old actually, testament we see large two beings. parts to that yeah actually we do yeah uh, there's lots know, I, I remember uh, back uh when uh, shaquille o'neal was playing for lsu <laughs> I had season tickets for the uh, University of Arizona basketball games. I was down there on the floor when Shaq went walking out of uh, the, uh, the locker room and onto the floor. He walked right past me. Now, I'm six foot three. Yeah. And I looked at him, and oh my gosh, <laughs> I would have said. Uh, the Nephilim have returned <laughs> because. <laughs> and we'll clarify that too. Because he, he was massive. Uh, I was uh, doing a workout at Drake Stadium at UCLA when I was in college, and uh, Wilt Chamberlain, uh, the basketball player who was seven foot tall and about 260 pounds, came walking into Drake Stadium through the uh, chain link fence entrance there. He filled the thing up. Mm. I mean, it was, he was not only just tall, he was huge. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we say, why don't we see giants today? Well, we certainly do. Do we see nine foot, six inch tall giants like Goliath? Right. Um, it's possible. The, the genetic information does seem to be around. Uh, there were those who uh, uh, posit this idea that uh, the Nephilim, uh, these giants of Genesis chapter six, were all wiped out by the flood because it was this hybrid angel, human uh, strategy of Satan to make mankind uh, unsavable. Well, the problem is in uh, the book of Numbers, we see in chapter 14 that the uh, Nephilim were back. They were there in the land, and uh, they said we were like grasshoppers in their sight. You know, there's different uh, uh, archaeological studies, but the average height of uh, the average Jewish person in that day and age is probably about five foot six. Mm. So if you're five six and you see Shaquille or Wilt walking around, you're going to probably be very impressed by them. Yeah, you know, and uh, we those do tend to be the popular people in militaries. That was Napoleon's strategy. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, basically wiped out all the tall people in France as a result of his various military campaigns. So, do we see giants in our day and age? Yeah, we do. Uh, do we see them on the scale that is being referred to? Uh, for instance, regarding Goliath, there's some who and ha that goes back about. Uh, you know, what is the size of a cubit and so on? And maybe Goliath was only about 6'5 or something like that. Mm. But uh, no, no. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, he was an extraordinary uh, individual. He's treated as such yep. in the scripture. Saul, uh, King Saul, was uh, described as being head and shoulders above anybody else in Israel, which mm. probably tells you why he was so nervous and worried and, and uh, more than happy to hand the sword and the armor over to David <laughs> because yeah. he was the next logical person right. to go out and fight. Your big guy, our big guy, we'll settle it right there. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Why do they always pick me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and let me, I got a list here from the Guinness Book of World Records. This is within the last hundred years. Uh, Robert Wadlow was eight foot 11 in the United States, and he's the tallest verified human in recorded history. Uh, shortly behind him, we have John Rogan, who is eight foot nine. We have people who are around, you know, eight foot even. We have the tallest woman on record, in fact, who is eight foot one. Let me get her name up here in a moment. But what's interesting about these, uh, uh, her name was, oh, uh, excuse me, uh, Zhang 
Jin Lian, I believe. She was Chinese, but uh, she was verified. There are other people who claim to be taller than her. Uh, someone from our Dutch heritage was rumored to be eight foot four, but the claims were disputed because these were records of her given in the 1600s. So they obviously couldn't verify that. The Guinea's mm-hmm. book wasn't making uh, records back then. Right. They couldn't take pictures. They didn't have photographs. But the idea of gigantism, which is actual medical condition, takes place medically in what's called the pituitary gland. When tumors develop in there, you just never stop growing. It generally means that you're not going to live past your late 40s if you're lucky because you know you got a tumor in your head. But the idea of these kind of phenomena isn't uncommon, especially in pagan cultures that thrived on producing children in some not so savory means. Birth defects were common and gigantism would have been one of many. Uh, we know that birth defects were actually common in Goliath's family line because one of his brothers was also famous not for being you know big and tall but having six fingers and six toes on each hand we see this as just another example of birth defects so to say it's oh mythological giants like 32 feet tall and there's uh, some of the accounts of legends that I could bring up here but when we're talking about these issues uh, the stories that were told of for instance the uh, Italian man who was 33 feet tall and uh, like you know they exhumed his bones and stuff it it turned out to be a extinct animal and they mm-hmm. just had like a femur bone but it looked kind of human because of the water warping it and stuff so you need to be careful when you get in caught in this kind of sensationalism when it comes to the term Nephilim giants is a possible conclusion because of how it's used in numbers 14 after the flood it's not just referring to the fact that they were huge that's more set by the context we were grasshoppers in their sight but the word isn't actually giants it's fallen ones ones. it's describing their relationship with god and that's the problem when you got big and here's the key influential people who don't have relationships with god look at tiktok today you don't need to be tall to be influential. You did then, but the idea was based around this idea that the knowledge of the true and living God just wasn't mainstream anymore. It really was. But the idea of the flood building up to this, which we'll tie into another question here in a second, is being centered around these Nephilim is quite frankly a misnomer, and it's been used by a lot of bad teachers and even cult groups to miss the whole point of what Genesis 6 was talking about. When it comes to the idea of why don't we see giants today in the terms that the Bible consistently uh, portrays them, we do see giants today, influential people who don't have a relationship with God. We say, well, what about big people? Isn't the Bible mythological? Because, and this was one of examples that they made, Og, where his bedpost was described to be 13 and a half feet long and tall. Yeah, his bed was that big. That doesn't mean that he filled the whole thing yeah, up. He had to uh, uh, curl up to fit into it. I, I, I can comfortably fit on a California king and, you know, have leg room. You, you know, you have more bedroom, but less bedroom because of the... Let me know if you can follow that. But the idea of him having his bed measurements in this, yeah, he was probably a big guy, but yeah. we're not told that he literally filled up the whole bed frame. It was literally just describing his reputation as a large guy. We aren't given measurements for him. If on the other hand, we're going to take that and say, oh, dismiss the whole Bible because it's mythological, you're taking five steps too far. Here's what we know. There's been a lot of big guys and gals throughout history. 
there are a lot of people who poorly handle this text and mythologicalize it, and they should be challenged and questioned, just like we expect you to do with us regarding our homework. When it comes to the nature of these giants, why don't we see them today? As my dad started with the question, we do. Just make sure that you have, don't have that picture in your mind of the Islamic view of Adam being 50 feet tall and then mankind slowly shrinking. That's not Christianity. Yeah, right. Very good. Pauline, yeah. thank you for that question. hope that helps you out today. Uh, question from Jill. Uh, what exactly was... Uh, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, uh, the flood of Noah, the people at that time, and Nineveh, um, that they were destroyed. What was so evil that they were doing? Were they doing something that was more evil than the things we see today? <laughs> doing a <laughs> lot of the, stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and uh, it's an excellent question. There's a number of uh, statements that are made about what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. Uh, we can go back to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 19 to see the account. Uh, in fact, in Genesis chapter 18, we see how uh, Abraham got into almost a bargaining session with God about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you yeah. know, God said that uh, the evilness, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah had risen up to him. And uh, so he dispatched two angels to find out if these things were really so, like God needed to know this was for Abraham's benefit. And so we see Abraham kind of growing in a sense in terms of his compassion uh, for people and probably uh, in self-interest as far as the family goes, he knew that Lot, his nephew, uh, was uh, by this time a political player in Sodom and Gomorrah. He sat at the city gate. Uh, and so he gets in this conversation with God saying, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom, would you spare the city? Uh, and uh, you know, God says, well, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, again, Abraham, uh, you know, uses the, the uh, famous statement, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yeah. Uh, if there's 40, you know, would you spare it? You know, I mean, and, and he says, you know, please uh, let me continue to speak. And he kind of dickers God down in a sense to 10. Well, this wasn't changing God's mind. This was laying a hold of God's mercy at this particular point. God said, if there's 10 righteous, uh, I'll spare the city. And so uh, the angels show up. Uh, most of us know what happened. They were going to spend the night in the city square. Lot saw him there and said, no, you can't do that. You got to come to my house. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, soon we found out why. Uh, pretty much the entire uh, Chamber of Commerce and Mar Marching and Chowder Society of Sodom and Gomorrah shows up at Lot's door and uh, demands uh, that uh, these strangers uh, be turned over to them so they can sexually rape them. As uh, one does. Yeah, yeah. homosexually Lovely. rape them. Welcome. So um, in that culture, and even to this day in the Middle East, there's a very strong idea of hospitality. In other words, if you take someone under your roof, you are morally responsible for their safety. You know, there, there is no greater shame than allowing something to happen to someone who's come under your roof. And that's why we see the whole deal with Lot freaking out and saying, hey, you know, I got... Uh, uh, you know, these virgin daughters of mine, uh, you know, you can have them. You're like, oh, man, father of the year. But, uh, you know, that was not good enough for them. And we even see modern examples of this being practiced in the account of Lone Survivor, the movie that was made off of a real event right. where a full-fledged right. Muslim enemy of the United States guy took 
a American soldier under his care, under his hospitality, because he was wounded, and literally defended him for months on end from his countrymen, from people he agreed with theologically, because he was supposed to show this law of hospitality. Yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah had purposely neglected that, and this is where the real kicker comes in. They didn't just sin. Every nation did that. And we're told in Acts 17 that in times and places God's overlooked these things. But what's the real kicker? They knew better. They knew the consequences, and judgment was going to fall. God doesn't hold someone accountable in these direct senses unless they've been given a warning, they know the means of escape, and it's even provided ongoingly. This is how you make this right. When Sodom crossed a line, it wasn't just the fact that they, you know, did the pride parade thing or whatever. It was because they knew that this would warrant consequences, and now they were beyond saving. And since God's disposition is not for the destruction of the wicked, we talked about this yesterday, how far had they gotten? really far. And you can even read, for instance, uh, kind of by contrast, but in inclusion with your question, the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, which was their capital city, they were insane. I won't go into too much detail, but we have very brief records of Herodotus and others that mention the way that they would instill terror tactics in ways that would just curl your hair if you heard about some of them, not just you know, making pyramids out of heads of all the celebrities in town and stuff, and just letting you kind of reflect on that the next time they come around. But even records, mythological or not, you can be the judge, but of entire cities committing suicide when they found out they would come under siege by these guys because they knew how cruel they were. Uh, People who would be tortured outside of city walls so that the soldiers defending it would hear these screams right before an attack. These guys were messed up. Jonah sent to Nineveh, and you understand why, in light of the historical context, you don't want these guys to be saved because that's the only reason why God would be sending me here. He's giving them warnings. That means a means of escape. I don't want that. I want these guys to be judged. A fish later, and he comes back. What happens? They turn. They repent so passionately, they're putting uncomfortable clothing to show their grief on their cows, for corn's sake. And what happens? Well, Nahum comes back, was it Nahum? Yeah. A generation later, their parents learned their lesson. Their parents didn't know better and were just doing their pagan thing. But what happened then? Their kids did know better, but went back to the pagan things. Then judgment's going to fall. So with Sodom and with Assyria, with whoever you want to name, God's going to hold them accountable for what he's revealed them. And knowing that there were consequences, that's the sin that earns judgment, knowing the consequences and doing it anyway. That's when judgment falls. That's why God judged them. Not just that they did things, but they knew better, which should make us very sober in our own lives as well. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is uh, these days there's a conversation that comes up and says, you know, well, the sin of Sodom was, you know, again, violent homosexuality, and that's why God destroyed the city. Well, that wasn't the only problem that Sodom had. Uh, we're in the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday nights in a fascinating passage that comes up in this conversation. It's Ezekiel 16, beginning at verse 49, says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Mm. Now, there are those who will say, Ah, see, it wasn't homosexuality. Right. It was being haughty and proud and not sharing with the poor. 
Because uh, Genesis that, 19 doesn't exist. That, that's that's yeah. that's why. So well, be a generous homosexual when you're being Well, a <laughs> couple things that, you know, argue against that. Yeah, those were also reasons why Sodom was judged. But uh, again, in Jude 7, we're told, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, uh, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In other words, um, it's a both and it's not an either or uh you know i think uh, some of the, uh, the quote unquote progressive uh and i use the quotes evangelicals will say oh well you know sodom's sin was not being generous with their their goods well they that's true but that wasn't the whole thing yeah, right? it's yeah. not mutually exclusive that someone who's sexually immoral in any capacity is always generous otherwise there'd be a conflict but there mm -hmm. is in fact two sins that you can commit in this case five yeah so they were guilty of an awful lot of sins uh homosexuality was one of the principal reasons that god poured out this destruction on the cities destroying them and their inhabitants and uh again where uh, this site is located we have some friends who uh, uh go out dr uh, tom collins uh, from Albuquerque leads digs out in this area and there's some uh, really interesting uh, artifacts they found in the uh, general area where Sodom and Gomorrah was it's mm. down in the bottom of the Dead Sea now you look at that and you go wow you know how could this be just this beautiful lush place that was uh, so prosperous and easy to grow food well after God got done with it uh, the geography and the geology changed uh, you know it's really interesting one of the uh, the artifacts that they dug up in this particular excavation was a, uh, a clay pot that dated to the uh, time roughly of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the time mm -hmm. of Abraham. The bottom part of this pot is clay. The top part has been uh, converted into a uh, particular kind of uh, mineral uh, that is created when lightning strikes sand. Wow. It still holds the the uh, the images of uh, being formed and made. It's like the top. It of It was pot. so superheated so quickly that it didn't shatter, but right. it was also intact. In, yeah, it's it's interesting. Wow. But you, you look at that and you're just like, wow. So God glassed it like Tatooine in Star Wars Legends. That's mm -hmm. pretty much what happened. Yeah. We can archaeologically verify that. Yeah, man. That's so, awesome. It's fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah. Stuff. Not the fact they got nuked, but the fact yes, that yes, we can sorry, verify yeah, history. Sorry for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, let's try and squeeze one more question in here. We're at the end of the show already. This, the time goes so quick. But thank you, Jill, for that question. Um, question from Yari. I think we, um, we talked about this before, but it's a, it's a good question. What happens when God calls you to be a singer, or it could be really anything, and you decide to do something else or nothing with your talent? Is this wood, hay, and stubble? Thanks. So basically the question is, can we miss our calling? Yeah, uh, careful the association, 1 Corinthians 3, and I believe... I'm not rem remember exactly where it is in Matthew, but the parable of the talents, is that Matthew 25? Yeah. Um, either yeah. way, when 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3 is talking about wood, hay, and stubble, it's what you build on your life, what you proactively do, not what you neglect, and that's more in terms of sin as opposed to righteousness. But if we're talking about the parable of the talents, that, that again is a different kind of conversation. 
James might be a good passage to keep in mind for what you're asking about, Yari. If he knows to do good but doesn't do it, to him it is sin. But if we're asking the question, you know, missed opportunities, missed callings, neglected gifts, and so forth, it usually stems around, I'm not living the ideal life that God's called me to do. Mm. And so I'm kind of settling for less than what God wanted to do through me by giving me these gifts. It's a lot of inferences upon inferences. God's going to use you where you're faithful. God's going to reward you as you're faithful, not punish you because of negligence. If you neglect the gift of salvation, it doesn't matter what good things you did, and if you receive the gift of salvation, you have the greatest possible thing sans anything else. But if we're asking the question, what can I do with this life, we should be pursue every talent that we're given. Yeah. If we neglect that, though, out of fear of punishment rather than a desire for further reward, it's the exact, exact opposite attitude Scripture wants us to have. Yeah, you know, uh, the other thing I would just say, Yari, is there's all kinds of people who will share testimonies about the fact that they tried to run from a calling of God. In fact, uh, J. Oswald Sanders, in his excellent book, Spiritual Leadership, if you're thinking about going into ministry, I highly recommend reading it. But uh, one of the things he points out is the Moses principle. Uh, you, one of the surest ways to know that you're called by God to actually do something is sooner or later you'll try to get out of it and God will put you back. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd say that there was a time in my walk with God where I tried to get out of the idea uh, that God had called me to ministry for a number of different reasons. But God put me back. And I think it dovetails really nicely with Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3 and following. Uh, where we read, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I might be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Now notice he's got genuine faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is also in you. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it appears that Timothy was like, ah, you put me here in Ephesus and it's really getting intense and uh, maybe I'm just not cut out for all of this. Mm -hmm. But Paul is saying, you've got genuine faith, Timothy. You know, we laid hands on you. We've given you this task. God has given you this task. And if you approach it, not with a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, yeah. God's gonna bless. Yeah, amen to that. Well, great questions today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us and sending your questions in. We'll be back at the same time, same places tomorrow. Hope you have a great rest of your evening, and we will see you then. Thank you, gentlemen. God bless you guys. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.